Everywhere you look, the forces of capital are conspiring against labor. In fewer places, is that more obvious than in the restaurant industry? Which brings us to our guest this week, Lever News reporter Julia Rock. Julia has a new piece out documenting what happened at the recent Restaurant Legal Summit, which is an annual conference hosted by the National Restaurant Association, the biggest lobbying group for that industry. The story gives us an insight into how restaurant owners are handling the recent uptick in union organizing. And uh, let's just say they aren't handling it very well. The article is titled Fear and Loathing Among Union Busters. Julia, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on. Good to have you. So I love how your piece opens with an executive from Golden Corral trying to rally his fellow restaurant bosses in in attendance at this conference because they were all feeling sad after a speech that they just heard from the National Labor Relations Board General Counsel Jennifer Abruzzo. Um, One, it's funny that Abruzzo was invited to come and talk to this group. And two, that what she said made them made them kind of sad and upset. Well, I'm 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 glad you you uh, liked the opening. Uh, someone had pointed out on on Twitter, like, did did nobody Google Jennifer Abruzzo before they invited her? But honestly, that was the vibe. Uh, so she went up and gave a speech, sort of, basically saying to the audience, "Look, if you violate the National Labor Relations Act, like there are going to be consequences." And of course, uh, during the Biden administration, there have been a lot more consequences for uh, union busting than under the Trump administration because Abruzzo's NLRB has been much more aggressive about reinstating workers fired for organizing and sort of seeking full back pay for them. So she's basically going up there and saying, like, if you break the law, there are going to be consequences. And also sort of uh, detailing the ways in which her NLRB has sort of more broadly interpreted labor law um, to protect workers. I love how he, uh, uh, this Golden Corral guy starts out with comrades, and I don't know if he is uh, trying to poke fun at uh, at Jennifer Abruzzo, or if he is un- oh, definitely, or if he's unintentionally revealing <laughs> that they are all they're not competitors, that they all have their uh, shared class interests. You know, it didn't make it into the story, but Abruzzo was referred to as Comrade Abruzzo, I think by a number of people, not just this Golden Corral executive over the course of the conference. But you're right that there's a double meaning there that I don't think he was picking up on, which is that, you know, these uh, restaurant chains are also um, sort of colluding or, or, or working together, honestly, in a way that workers you know, don't nearly enough in the U.S. or anywhere. Um, but he's sort of speaking to an audience of people who he's working with to, to, uh, I mean, really, honestly, fight a class war. I, th- I think the other thing I appreciated about the anecdote at the beginning, and we'll move on from talking about Golden Corral here, is <laughs> and I haven't given much thought to like what the internal pecking order is within the National Restaurant Association, but I didn't imagine that Golden Corral would be up that high in the pecking <laughs> order where this guy is like getting a getting a, a speaking slot to follow Jennifer Abruzzo or be the guy to hype up the, the team. I, I figure maybe it'd be like the head of Darden Restaurants or some other real big wig 
influencer in the game, but I guess Golden Corral still has sway around the country, still has their their operation going. I mean, I, I, I looked it up, you know, it's one of like the hundred largest, maybe even the 50 largest restaurant chains, but it's certainly not one that comes to mind. You know, Chipotle has someone on on the chair of this organization. Uh, you know, the owners of like Dunkin' Donuts and Arby's are in there. Um, more, maybe more recognizable and seemingly powerful change. But yeah, he, I think he was the the chairman of the board of this, the, the restaurant law center, sort of the legal arm of the NRA at the time that, that he was on the microphone. I think it's probably worth talking about just how effective the National Restaurant Association has been in its lobbying operations. Um, when most people think of the NRA, they think of the uh, National Rifles Association uh, and how effective that that organization is in influencing members of Congress. But really, and Sam and I were joking about this earlier in the show, uh, the National Restaurant Association is probably responsible for just as much, if not more death than the uh, gun lobby and certainly uh, more immiseration, the immiseration of more people. Um, for those who just aren't familiar with this NRA, I guess give us a rundown on just its exploits. So sort of the keystone accomplishment of this group, I guess for the past few decades now, has been the preservation of the sub-minimum wage, which is as insane as it sounds. This is a minimum wage of two thirteen an hour that tipped workers, uh, still in 15 states, but it's the federal standard, are paid. It's been two thirteen an hour for about 30 years now. And the NRA has sort of fought tooth and nail in states, in localities, in states at the federal government to keep the subminimum at 213 an hour. Uh, the other major victory of the NRA has been keeping the regular federal minimum wage uh, at 725 an hour and again sort of spending hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of dollars to fight local um, sort of ballot measures or city council or state legislation to raise the minimum wage. So really their key issue that they've been hugely successful on has been fighting against increases in both the sub-minimum wage and the regular minimum wage. And that's something that's been happening in uh, here in Washington, D.C. with the uh, tipped minimum wage. Voters passed a referendum a few years ago uh, to get rid of it so that all restaurant workers make the minimum wage here in DC. Um, and the city council overturned it because of how powerful the restaurant lobby in this town is, particularly celebrity chef Jose Andres, who uh, was a major uh, campaigner against the uh, measure. So and this didn't ahead, make it into we the story. <laughs> well, this didn't make it into the story, but they announced at the conference they they were sort of showering praise on Jose Andre for his work against uh, raising the wage in D.C. And there was also this. This was the um, executive director of the the restaurant law center. He was sort of, you know, praising him for his his great um, work, saying the way that he had sort of built a brand and used it in these lobbying efforts was sort of something that could be learned from in terms of like how lobbying should work going forward. They were saying what a great guy he is. You know, he went to Puerto Rico after the hurricane, he went to Ukraine. And there was also this part where they, who knows if this is true, 
but the executive director of the Restaurant Law Center said that he was at some Democratic Attorney General's event and Carl Racine, the, the AG who had come out against the raising the subminimum in 2018, came up to him and said, like, I was talking to, um, you know, Jose Andre about uh, raising the minimum wage and I can see why it might be a bad idea. Like what made people who are listening to Bruzo's speech so uh, uncomfortable? Um, because like, I'm sure a lot of this stuff is already known to them that they can't get away with this. But like, did, is it just the idea that the, the, the free ride is over for them now that there's like someone who's a little bit more aggressive in the position at the NLRB? So I think in general, it's like, pretty annoying to them to have a federal regulator come and say, like, there are going to be consequences if you break the law. That's not usually what happens, I think, when regulators speak to lobbying groups. Normally, it's a little bit more friendly. But there were a few specific things people um, really picked up on. Uh, so one of them that uh, a couple of presenters, which as maybe we'll get to was sort of these corporate lawyers who represent restaurants in labor matters, including unions, they were mad that she had sort of said the purpose of the National Labor Relations Act and the NLRB is to sort of level the playing field between employers and workers and that she works for a pro-worker agency. They sort of disputed that point. There were other more specific things she said. Uh, one that came up a ton over the course of the conference was her definition of protected concerted activity, which is like the type of activity that workers can engage in with one another without being retaliated against. So typically it applies to like workers talking about wage issues or working conditions. She was sort of saying, we are fighting to expand the definition of protected concerted activity to sort of more broadly social and political issues that might um, impact the lives of workers. So that, that was a point people were really hung up on. And then she was also sort of talking about expanding. Um, I mean, one, one thing Abruzzo has done that she's gotten a lot of pushback for is sort of declared that captive audience meetings in which workers are required to listen um, to basically anti-union messaging from their employers are illegal. Um, she's trying, you know, to fight through case law to make them illegal. She also said during her speech that the definition of a captive audience meeting can extend to a one-on-one -on -one meeting between a worker and a boss. And that was something that the lawyers were very up in arms about. Yeah, I guess normally they when they bring a government official in, they think they can ply them with booze and good food and uh, you have a captive regulator here, but that's not what they're getting uh, with Jennifer Abruzzo. Um, some might say union busters have an interest in making a Democratic administration seem more of a threat to management than it actually is. But uh, given all that's happened recently, it seems like they do have a reason to be scared. Uh, as you said, and the, uh, you know, you talked about the captive audience meetings. These guys were making jokes afterwards about what would constitute a captive audience meeting and coming up with like various workarounds to that, where if you're constantly having these meetings before a union campaign is taking place, then it's not really a captive audience meeting if you just keep having them after the union campaign has started. 
I mean, that was like such a fascinating suggestion to me. So yeah, what you're referring to is like a suggestion from a, a union avoidance lawyer is the industry term, what we would probably know as a union buster that, you know, if you're, if you're sort of concerned both about, you know, a bruzo cracking down on captive audience meetings, as well as like your employees not being into the idea of being dragged into a captive audience meeting, you know, before you get even a petition for a union campaign, Start having a lot of meetings where you talk about what a great workplace your employees work in. Um, and if those need to be very quickly sort of turned into captive audience meetings without anyone really noticing, you can do that. Were there any other sort of cutting edge union busting strategies that were discussed at the conference that uh, workers should be aware of moving forward as they as they try and organize their workplaces? I mean, the thing that like honestly made my jaw drop was that the Jackson Lewis lawyers basically said like, look, everybody is talking about social just justice issues and everyone's talking about ESG and ESG is environmental, social and corporate governance investing. I mean, now it's being used to describe all sorts of things that aren't investing, but basically it's this idea that like, um, you know, if a company is sort of more responsible, it maybe has a more diverse board, maybe it does some like uh, things that are good for the environment, which everyone probably knows are bullshit, but whatever, maybe they're good for the environment. That can sort of get um, those companies' investments like rated in particular ways that investors want to be putting their money into. So you can get like a better ESG rating if you like make your company seem better for the world. They were basically like, look, you're already sort of selling this fake social justice stuff to your investors, sell it to your workers too. Like the stuff you're doing on ESG should be part of your union avoidance strategy. And I think that was the type of thing that people are constantly like throwing conspiracy theories around about. And to, so to hear the Jackson Lewis lawyers just say it, like ESG can also do union avoidance really made my jaw drop. Well, we've seen we've seen companies employ that, like at REI, where they the the uh, executives there put out a podcast where they did like a land acknowledgement and they acknowledged their pronouns. But the entire thrust of this podcast was to discourage union organizing. And I think there's been sort of a cynical read of the sort of um, social justice language union busting that's like oh, um, you know, sort of workers, this is the language that like Gen Z workers are speaking. You know, they really care about um, things like, I don't know, land acknowledgements, correct pronouns. So like they're being sort of duped by the union busters. But I think that reading might be a little bit off because um, like one thing that was coming up again and again and again at the conference was that having a workforce that is sort of engaged in social issues, talking about social justice issues, is a workforce where people are gonna be talking to each other and maybe end up forming a union. So I think the reading, I guess what I'm saying is I think the reading that's like, oh, um, you know, all like all of this social justice language is bullshit and like the um, union busters are recognizing that isn't quite right. I think they seem genuinely worried that you know their 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 workers were um, you know increasingly social justice oriented, and that that could lead to a more unionized workforce. That's a great point, and as you mentioned in your piece, it explains why 
I think it's Whole Foods is uh, right now fighting so hard against allowing their workers to have Black Lives Matter pins or uh, a face mask because of what you just said, that if if workers are, uh, you know, God, I hate to say it, but getting woke, you know, about right, this right. sort of stuff, right? <laughs> like that also makes them more susceptible to more radical labor organizing as well. And uh, I see companies with using the ESG thing kind of like uh, that Steve Buscemi meme, like, hey, kids, uh, you know, I'm cool and hip to this stuff. We're totally. all cool and hip to like get into the converse, just to get into the conversation so that they can then derail it from talking about union organizing. Because it is yeah, a potent, is it perfect. is very potent. Totally, yes. Um, I think that the, uh, do I have it right that the National Restaurant Association in 2018, like one of its biggest uh, recipients of campaign cash was Kirsten Cinema? Oh man, that sounds right. I'd have to look back. We did report uh, in the spring of 2021 on Kirsten Cinema and Senator Joe Manchin speaking at a national restaurant um, mm. association event, basically being thanked for voting against raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. So what you're saying adds up. Uh, she obviously famously is a big enemy of raising the minimum wage, uh, which makes her a good ally of the organization. Yeah. 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 Uh Julia, any uh, any other uh, aspects of the piece you wanted to uh, close out or share with the audience that we didn't get a chance to get to? I mean, I think that, you know, I, your your point is good sort of about uh, these union avoidance lawyers maybe having having um, uh, a real financial incentive to like play up um, the threat of unions. And who knows really like how how worried they are about something like Starbucks happening to every chain restaurant. In, in America. Um, but I think the other the other sort of tone that I that that caught me a little off guard and I think I've seen in the response to the piece has even surprised people a little bit is like just how much contempt um, or how 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 the union the union avoidance people do not take seriously. Uh, the workers trying to organize the unions, or at least they do not take seriously the fact that they might have um, demands that aren't aren't simply superficial. And and that I thought was interesting because I think, you know, there are many, many points that you hear union avoidance lawyers or lawyers who have restaurants as clients make that are extremely astute. In some ways, they understand these workplaces very well. They understand the industry very well. They have to have their finger on the pulse of the labor movement. But I was sort of surprised that they did not take seriously any of the reasons, or at least maybe they weren't confessing it. Although, honestly, I thought they were speaking very candidly. They did not seem to take seriously why a person might form a union. And that was the one thing that really surprised me. Well, they're they're blinded by their class allegiance, probably. They just can't put themselves in uh, the shoes of a worker to understand it. I think that's exactly right. Julia Rock, reporter at Lever News. Check out the new piece, Fear and Loathing Among the Union Busters, over at Lever News right now. And subscribe to Lever News if you, uh, if you can afford it. They're uh, an excellent um, news organization that's putting out stories that uh, are really making people in power scared. Um, it's good. You all do great work. Thanks so much.